With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Sports, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Paul Nepper, and I'm the host of this channel. Today, we'll be talking to Chris Donnelly about his new book, Doc, Donnie, the Kid, and Billy Brawl, How the 1985 Mets and Yankees Fought for New York's Baseball Soul. This is Chris's third book. His first book was Baseball's Greatest Series, Yankees-Mariners in the 1995 Matchup That Changed History, followed by his next book, How the Yankees Explain New York. Chris Donnelly, welcome to the show. Hey, Paul. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Sure. Chris, I wonder if you could begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself. Sure. I was born and raised in North New Jersey, uh, North Jersey as we call it, in a small town called Pompton Lakes. And I went to college at the College of New Jersey in Ewing. Um, I started my first book, uh, as you noted, uh, was Baseball's Greatest Series. I started writing that in around 2006, 2007. Uh, I, I'm not a writer by profession, um, but uh, the 95 series was the first time I'd seen the Yankees in the playoffs, and it had a lasting impact on me, even though they lost. And I just thought it would make a great topic for a book and just sat down and started writing and interviewing and researching and it all worked out. And uh, eventually it led to my second book, which is how the Yankees explain New York. And it was writing and researching for baseball's greatest series and just learning the really uh, sort of sorted bad history of the Yankees in the 1980s that had me come up with this idea for doc Donnie, the kid and Billy brawl sort of uh, comparing and contrasting the Yankees and the Mets, two teams headed in opposite directions in the 80s, and, and 1985 is where they happened to meet in the middle. So I guess my first question would be, what made the 1985 Yankees and Mets such an appealing topic for you to write about? So it was it, it was two teams, as I said, going in different directions. The, the 80s had started with the Yankees uh, on top or as close to on top as you could get going to the ALCS in 1980, going to the World Series in 81, even though they didn't win. And the Mets were one of, if not the worst teams in baseball. Uh, it, it, was, it was sort of stunning when I was researching how bad the Mets actually were at that time period. Uh, and then in 84, there's indications and hints that things might be changing a little bit. The, the prospects and the trades that the Mets had made were starting to... They, they were starting to develop and pan out, and, and the Yankees were getting tiresome and the arguing and Steinbrenner and all this stuff was, was starting to push people away. Uh, and then 85 is really where they met 
in the middle. It's where they intersected the Yankees going down, the Mets going up. Uh, they had nearly identical records that year. The Mets 98-64, the Yankees 97-64. and 64. They were both eliminated from the postseason on the second to last day of the year, which is something that had never happened since the Mets came to town. They had never been both teams in contention so late in the year. And for them to be eliminated on the same day, for them to have nearly the same records, um, there was sort of a symmetry about 85 that I just really appealed to me because after that, it was not the same. The Mets really took over New York and left the Yankees in the dust for the rest of the decade. And, And when you add to all of that, just these amazing stories, both on and off the field in 85 from the Mets and the Yankees, uh, I thought that particular season would just be would make a great topic. So you started the book with the Gary Carter trade, which you referred to as the greatest trade in Mets history. Why do you think that trade was so crucial for the Mets? I think it was a couple things. Is for, I mean, the most obvious one is that Gary Carter was the the best, uh, or if not the second best catcher in baseball. At the time, uh, he put up tremendous numbers with the Expos, and, and we know now that he was on his way to the Hall of Fame. And so this was really something – this was in a position that the Mets had really had somebody of Carter's caliber at in their entire history. And this was in addition to all the other players they had that were developing, like Strawberry and Gooden. And, of course, they'd made the trade for Hernandez two years earlier. But they'd never really had somebody of Gary Carter's caliber on their team. And – not only that, but they did this a week after the Yankees had traded for Ricky Henderson, who was arguably the best all-around player in, in baseball. And the Henderson deal, you, you would have thought the day it was made that this was going to go down as one of the greatest trades in Yankees history. And it's largely forgotten uh, these days, whereas the Carter deal is not forgotten. It is remembered by uh, most, if not all, Mets fans who were alive at the time. As sort of This was the defining moment where the Mets were saying, okay, we're no longer talking about incrementally getting better. This guy is the final piece of the puzzle we need to take back the division and the league and to get the world championship. Uh, And so I think it wasn't just that it improved the team and eventually led to them getting to a world championship, but it was the fact that it, it really took away the headlines from the Yankees. And it's, it's really sort of the unofficial starting point of New York becoming a Mets and, and no longer a Yankees town. Um, throughout the book, there, there's kind of this ongoing theme of the battle. I, I guess I call it a battle between the Yankees and Mets for the hearts and minds of New Yorkers, as well as the back pages of the New York tabloids, which back in 1985 was a much bigger deal than, you know, pre-internet was a much bigger deal than 2019. Can you talk a little about that? Yeah, it was... Um it was an interesting dynamic because I don't, I mean, I think the Mets cared about winning the hearts and minds of the city uh, simply as a way to stick it to the Yankees. Um, but I don't think they, that's what drove them to win. I mean, they, they wanted to win as a ball club because they wanted to win. That's what you do. Whereas George Steinbrenner was obsessed with winning the back page headlines. He, he was in constant fear of losing fans to the Mets and I'm sure some of it was was economics and not wanting to lose money, but I, I think it was just it was something deeper than that. It, it was Steinbrenner just had the personality of nobody's going to be bigger or better than I am uh, or my team is, and he was in constant fear that anything the Mets did uh, that was positive would take away fans. 
And so he was constantly trying to win the back page headlines. Uh, and he was starting to lose that battle in, in 1985. The Mets were the much more exciting team throughout most of the summer. Uh, really, it was only towards the end of the year when the Yankees seemed to have a, a more realistic shot than the Mets in those last few days of the season that the Yankees took over. But the Mets were more interesting. The Mets were fun. They engaged in brawls. They engaged, they were drinking. They were doing drugs. I mean, the, the things that we know about the 86 Mets that, that people remember and love about them, all that stuff started in 1985. Uh, and, and it made them sort of these, these heroes in the city. Whereas everything the Yankees did was uh, chaotic and corporate. And it was the same old tired story between George and Billy Martin. And it just drove people away. And by the end of the 85 season, uh, it, it had really solidified in terms of in, in the minds of fans in the city that the Mets were fun and exciting. And this is who people wanted to actually come out and watch. And the Yankees, were, they were just tiresome. They were just a tiresome act and they weren't winning to make it even worse. Um, as a reminder to our listeners, of course, in 1985, there was no interleague play yet. So the Yankees and Mets didn't face off during the regular season. So my question is, how much did the players care about this so-called rivalry between the two teams? It's, uh, it's an interesting question, and it's one I asked a lot of the players that I interviewed. Um, and some of them will tell you that they didn't necessarily care uh, Butch Weiniger was quoted back in 1985 as saying, look, I don't really care what Gary Carter is doing. Butch Weiniger was a catcher for the Yankees. And he said, I don't really care what Gary Carter is doing. I'm just focused on trying, trying to win games for the Yankees. I think to some degree that was true. But I also spoke to other players who would tell you that, of course, they were aware of what's going on. Because you could not not be aware because the press was asking about it constantly. Because the teams were, for the first time since the Mets came into existence, both trying to make the postseason. And I think the other big reason why a lot of players, at least on the Yankee side, were aware is because George Steinbrenner made them aware of what was going on. They were all cognizant of, of the fact that if, if the Mets were doing better than they were, they were going to hear about it or at least feel the pressure from Steinbrenner, who had a history of harsh reactions to any time the Mets got the better of the Yankees. Uh, there, there was a pitcher, a prospect in the Yankee system, who in 1981, in a spring training game, in a meaningless spring training game, he got rocked by the Mets, uh, and the game was broadcast back home, and George essentially banished him to the minors for the rest of his Yankees career. So the Yankees were certainly aware of what was going on with the Mets. Um, and, and But for the Mets, it was just fun and games for them. It, they were winning, and if they just happened to be better than the Yankees, well, that was just sort of the, you know, the cherry on top. Part of what makes this book such an enjoyable read is the colorful characters involved, uh, none more so than George Steinbrenner. Yankee fans embraced George when the team was winning in the late 90s, and then, of course, he kind of disappeared from public life as his health failed in the last years of his life. Uh, but I think, I think because of that, a lot of people forget just how crazy he was in the 1980s. Can you talk a little bit about George and his antics and his involvement with the team? Yeah, it's really one of the great, uh, I don't know if you want to call it comeback or revisionist or however you want to describe it. The, the idea that Yankee fans in the year 2018, 2019 would be going around saying, well, if only George were still alive, 
was crazy in the mid to late 80s. It, it, they, they wanted him gone. And in fact, when Steinbrenner was banished in 1990 and eventually was turned back down to a suspension, I mean, the Yankee Stadium applauded. They got up and cheered for minutes that he was officially gone. I mean, George was uh, at his manic worst in the mid 80s. He, he had a history of not listening to his baseball people and of making trades uh, based on his own baseball instincts, which were not that good. Um, and of course, he wanted the biggest, splashiest free agent signing. In the 70s, he got away with it simply because the Yankees were winning. But once that started to not happen in the 80s, uh, the act just became a Yankee fans grew weary of it. And the idea of hiring and firing Billy Martin five times uh, is just, I mean, think about that today. If a team hired a manager for a second time, uh, that would be sort of interesting. And he did it five times with Billy Martin. That would never happen today. And he was going to hire him a sixth time. Billy Martin was going to be the Yankees manager probably at some point in 1990. And George had essentially told him as much. Uh, if Martin hadn't died in a car crash on Christmas Day in 1989. And it wasn't just the managers. It was the way he treated his players. George had this – he tried to be sort of this everyman, right? I mean, even though he was born into wealth and he inherited wealth, um, and he, he had never essentially – not to say that he didn't work hard because he certainly did, but he wasn't somebody who was down in the dirt, right, making buildings or out working in the sun every day. But he tried to convey himself as this everyday working hero and by attacking his players and talking about how much money they made and they should be happy. You know, go ask a taxi cab driver uh, what they're doing every day while you're out there making millions of dollars. But that it just didn't work. It sounded fake and phony and, and they weren't taking his side and he, his commentary didn't help and people didn't want to go to New York anymore because he wants to put up with it. Uh, and. I mean, the result is in the team itself. By the the end of the 80s, the Yankees um, had nothing left because George had traded away all their prospects and gotten nothing in return. The big-name free agent players did not want to sign with the Yankees, Greg Maddox, Barry Bonds. They all said no. Uh, but then in the mid-90s, George comes back. He is somewhat uh, less intense than before, although he certainly still had his moments. And then, of course, he's a character on Seinfeld, which I think people underestimate just how much that did to help revive his image. I mean, obviously the Yankees winning all those championships helped, but this notion that George could be this funny, comical character, even though it wasn't him, it was Larry David's voice. Uh, I think that endeared him to a lot of people, showed that he could take a joke and he could roll with punches. And, and so by the time he dies, he, he, is, uh, he is this beloved figure, which again, the, the idea that that would possibly have happened in 1985 or 1990. Uh, or even 1995, uh, I don't think anybody would have believed it. Yeah, I, I agree completely. Uh, you touched on uh, the bizarre relationship between George and Billy. Um, why do you think George was so enamored with Billy? I think it was a two-way street. I think um, Billy and George needed each other, but it, it was never going to work because they were the same and yet they were so different. Billy grew up uh, incredibly poor in, near Oakland, California, whereas George, as I said, was born into wealth and inherited that wealth. Uh, and Billy felt he had to fight and scratch and scrape for everything that he ever earned. He, he most certainly had a tough guy mentality. We all know the many, many fights he engaged in over the years. George had a tough guy mentality, 
but I don't know if he ever actually acted upon it. He, he was more of a, you know, a spoken word tough guy versus actually getting into brawls. And I think originally they both thought that they could get something out of each other even more than just winning, which is George re- was a wannabe athlete. Uh, he really wanted to be in, in, ingratiated into that clubhouse culture, right? Hanging out with the guys after the game, drinking a beer, talking about sports. And he felt Billy could help him do that. And Billy sort of carried the resentments of, of his childhood with him. And so he wanted to be brought into that sort of New York high society group that Steinbrenner ran with. Uh, and it just never, ever worked out because Billy Martin's life was about patterns. Uh, the pattern was he'd come in, he'd take a ball club that wasn't that good. He would make them instantly good. This happened everywhere he went as manager. He would make them instantly good and successful. And then as that happened, Billy would uh, get involved with the drinking and the fighting and making comments about management that would eventually get him fired or getting involved with fights with players or fans that would get him fired. Uh, and that's what happened every time with the Yankees. And But you can't entirely blame Billy because George kept bringing him back. He just kept bringing him back one time after another because each time it was the thought that, well, Billy's a managerial genius, which he was, uh, but he can also instill discipline and get these guys into shape. And it, it, it worked for a couple months almost every time, and then it didn't. And then the inevitable happened. And it's all the more crazy to think that he was going to bring Billy back a sixth time. Uh, he had told Billy to be ready. Billy was already gathering a group of coaches to take over for Bucky Dent, who was managing the Yankees at the end of the 89 season. Um, and it was going to happen. It was going to happen uh, if Billy had not died in that car accident. And it's just something, that whole relationship is just, in and of itself, there have been many books written about it. You could probably write 30 or 50 more. Uh, and it's something I don't think we would ever possibly see again uh, in the sports world because it was just so bizarre. Yeah, there are a lot of great Billy stories in the book. Um, is there one, do you have one favorite in particular that you'd like to share? Oof, um, <laughs> there, there are so many. <laughs> yeah, that's a tough choice. There, there are so many that it's hard to, to choose. Um, I, I wouldn't necessarily call it a favorite. And uh, there's a part of me that, that sort of hates to pick this one. Um, but uh, I would say the Billy Eddie Whitson fight is just something, it's something that couldn't possibly happen today. Not with social media, not with everybody having a, a camera right in their hand. It couldn't possibly happen um, today, but it certainly happened in 1985. And Eddie Whitson was a pitcher who had come to the Yankees as a free agent from the Padres. He was not really meant to pitch in New York, and he had a tough time, and he just had a personality that Billy did not like, and vice versa. Uh, Billy was a yeller and a screamer and a constant second guesser, and he hated uh, catchers and pitchers and he blamed them for everything and some people could handle that and some people couldn't and Whitson that was not the way to get him to perform well and the, the two of them did not get along and eventually it led to a fight in the bar of the Yankees hotel the cross keys in Baltimore uh, Eddie got involved in an altercation with a fan uh, Billy came over and he was actually trying to break the fight up he, he was trying to help Whitson in that instance and instead Whitson said something to him and Billy punched him in the face 
And, and then they fight in the bar and then the fight leads to the lobby outside where Whitson kicks Billy in the groin. Billy gets back up and says, now you've done it. Now I have to kill you. I have to do it. And that was Billy's mentality. He couldn't back down from a fight. They end up in front of the hotel outside where Whitson tackles Billy and breaks his arm. They break up the fight. Some of the players lead Whitson around back to a service elevator. Billy goes back to the hotel, tries to find out what room Ed Whitson is staying in because he, he feels the fight is not finished. Management won't tell him what hotel room he is. Players get Billy into an elevator. They bring him upstairs by pure coincidence since they were staying on the same floor. As Billy's elevator door opens up, here comes Whitson walking past him right as the door opens, and they fight for a fourth time. Um, as this fight's going on, there's a reporter who is on the phone at his office back in New York trying to tell them what just happened, and he's dictating in real time the fight now as it's going on. And all of this happened. All of it happened in front of uh, reporters and fans. Um, there were countless witnesses who saw all of what happened that night. And, uh, I mean, that's really what led to Billy's firing after the 85 season, in spite of the record he had put together for the Yankees, because you just you couldn't trust him to not do this again. And it wasn't really shocking that it had happened. Um, so, again, I uh, Billy Martin was a managerial genius. He really was. Um, he thought outside the box. He did things that other managers didn't do. And you can see that in the record of the teams that he led. So I hate to point to that incident, but the fact remains that something like that, there's no way that would happen now. There's no way. It would be broken up before a second punch could be thrown. Um, And I think of all of Billy's fights, and there were many of them, I think that might be the most famous one. Yeah, I I certainly remember that even as a little kid. I remember that. Um, I also... uh, I was hoping maybe you could talk about the story as well when uh, Billy was managing from the hospital bed. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, wow. Um, again, there's just so many that it's hard to, it's hard to pick all of them, but what had happened was is the Yankees were in Texas and Billy was having some back pain and the Texas Rangers team doctor had given him an injection to try and uh, help ease the pain a little bit. And he ended up puncturing Billy's lung and collapsing his lung doing it. And so Billy had to stay in Texas, in Arlington, as the Yankees flew off to Cleveland for the next series. Uh, and what they had decided is that Lou Pinella, who was the bench coach and who had not been a major league manager yet, they said Lou would be the acting manager for the Cleveland series until Billy got back. But what was going to happen is, is Billy was going to call in from the hospital and essentially dictate to Pinella what moves to make, what players to put in, what batting order, etc. So, and the person who was going to relay these instructions was Butch Weiniger, who had a really bad relationship with Billy. Like I said, Billy hated catchers. Uh, and so it was tough being a catcher and having a good relationship with Billy. But Butch was on the DL. So they said, all right, you'll be in charge of, of relaying information. The first day it goes okay. But in the papers the next day, there's the same picture of Butch holding the dugout phone with his other hand over his ear, listening to Billy's instructions. So now everybody knows everybody knows what's going on. And what ends up happening is, is that fans are now calling into the Yankees dugout and pretending to be Billy Martin and dictating what should be done. Uh, one even called in saying that they were George Steinbrenner to tell Lou Pinella what to do. And then the Cleveland uh, Indians president finds out and he decides to have some fun. 
every time Billy calls, he told the operator, because this went through an operator back in the 80s to get them to the dugout, tells the operator, look, when Billy calls, send him to the Indians dugout, not the Yankees dugout. So that's what she did. Every time Billy called, she sent her, she sent him to the wrong dugout. Um, and it was starting to wear on Lou Pinella. And then finally, towards the end of the series, Butch gets a call from Billy and he hears music in the background. And so clearly Billy is not in the hospital anymore. And then he notices that Billy is slurring his words and he rec- realizes that Billy is actually calling him from a bar somewhere in Arlington, Texas. Billy has left his hospital bed and is calling from a bar. And there's a long pause during a pitching change. Butch doesn't hear anything. And then all of a sudden he hears Billy say to him, hey, Butch, how come you don't like me too much? How come nobody on the team likes me? And it's just this really sad incident of, of, this, of this guy sort of crying into his beer about how nobody on the team likes him. And the whole, ins- the whole series of events was enough where Lou Pinella walked away from the game for a day. The Yankees got back from Cleveland and he told Moss Klein, the writer for the Star-Ledger, I'm done. I'm out of here. I can't take this anymore. And he left for a day. And it took a phone call from Steinbrenner and Martin to say, nope, this will be okay. Things will get better to bring him back. Uh, and again, th- this is uh, – I know I keep saying this, but this is just something that could not possibly happen in today's world. Billy wouldn't be able to get five steps out of that hospital room without somebody taking a picture of him and saying, oh, look, Billy Martin is, is getting out of the hospital. Or a picture of him walking into a bar. Um, it was it was really uh, insane and asinine the whole setup, but I think it perfectly sums up what the Yankees were and what happened to that team in the 1980s. As you cover in the book, uh, Dwight Gooden had one of the greatest pitching seasons in baseball history in 1985, and and at such a young age. Can you talk a little about Doc, the person and the pitcher? Yeah, 1985, Doc's season that year is one of the greatest pitching performances, not just of the 80s or the expansion era, but really of all time. He was 24-4 and with a 1.53 ERA, 268 strikeouts. And I know some of those stats are not what we measure pitchers by anymore with analytics, but uh, they really were truly incredible numbers. He ran away with the Cy Young Award. And What's interesting to keep in mind is, is a couple things. Is One, Doc's ERA, he, he made the opening day start against the Cardinals, gave up a couple runs, so his ERA was 450. In his next start, which is against the Reds, he dropped his ERA below two, and it never went above two again for the rest of the season. So from the second start on until the rest of the season, it stayed below two. And he actually pitched better as the year went on, which is um, not always the case. Pitchers' arms get tired and... It's not uncommon to see their numbers suffer, but he actually got better and stronger as the year went on. Um, And what's amazing about all this is that he was only 20 years old as he's doing this. (laughs) I mean, he he wasn't 21 until November of that year. So here's this 20-year-old kid who is just dominating hitters in the National League, who has the big, huge billboard uh, in Midtown Manhattan of him in the windup, who was actually drawing in more fans to watch the game of the week. And, and there's something in the book about how producers for the game of the week, would, and this is sort of in the pre-500 channel days, where they would have one baseball game a week that they would highlight. And the producers would always hope if the Mets were playing that it was Doc Gooden who was pitching, because he usually meant about 500,000 more viewers. 
So here's this kid who's just incredible, blowing people away on top of the world. And I didn't want to harp too much in the book about what happened after 1985. I think most baseball fans are aware of uh, what happened with Doc and with Daryl and that they didn't necessarily live up to their full potential. I didn't want to harp on that in the book because it was one of those enjoy the moment in that it happened, right? Uh, smile because it happened kind of things and just appreciate how really truly dominating uh, Doc was in, in that season. We, we're probably never going to see numbers like that again, at least not for a while, just because of how the game has changed and everything. But 24-4, and four, and there was a real chance um, – that he could have won 30 games that year. I know you can say that for a lot of pitchers who have good seasons that if uh, something had fallen this way or that way, they could have won 30 games. But in the four games that Doc lost, he gave up nine runs total. So essentially two a game and the Mets only scored five total. Uh, So it really is not implausible to think that Gooden could have gone 30 and two that year or 31 and two. That's just how dominating he was. And the same year that Doc won the Cy Young Award, of course, across town, Don Mattingly was named American League MVP. Uh, how would you describe Mattingly as a player? Yeah, so Donnie had already won the batting title in 84, the famous race with his teammate Dave Winfield. And so there were high expectations for him going into 85. Um, but I don't think people fully expected the kind of year that he put up. 35 home runs, 145 RBIs. Uh, he was not thought of as a power hitter when he was coming up through the system. He was more of a line drive hitter. But he worked with Lupinella a little bit on his stance, and it enabled him to generate more power. And so through the first half of the year, um, and Ricky Henderson was really thought of as the MVP of the American League because Ricky was putting up tremendous numbers. And then after July 30th, Mattingly just caught fire. Uh, and he was by far and away the best player in the American League after that. Uh, and really by September, fans are starting to chant MVP every time he comes to the plate. And that was the season that, even with the batting title the year before, I mean, that was really the season where the rest of the league stood up and took notice. And and I don't think it's a stretch to say that Mattingly was the best hitter, uh, the best player really in the game, because nobody was hitting for power and average uh, the way Mattingly was and did over the next couple of years. And it was also one of the reasons why fans ended up loving him so much because he was putting up these tremendous numbers and the Yankees just couldn't reach the postseason. And it's possibly why he might be the most beloved sports figure in New York history, simply because the Yankees were never really able to take that next step with him. But uh, 85 is, is certainly a year where he essentially became the Don Mattingly that, that we grew to know uh, as a player. How good were those were those Mets and Yankees teams in 1985? I mean, they were the Mets finished at 98 and 64. The Yankees finished at 97 and 64. They had one game they didn't play because it, it became unnecessary once Toronto clinched the division. These were really, really good teams. Uh, it's unfortunate that they did not meet in the Subway Series that year or, or for a Subway Series that year because. Uh, it would have been really interesting to see how it played out. It would have been great to see Don Mattingly up there against Doc Gooden and see who would win that matchup or to see Daryl Strawberry try and hit Phil Negro's knuckleball, a 46-year-old Phil Negro whose career began before Doc Gooden was even born. 
we would have seen some really tremendous matchups here. The Mets dominating pitching versus the Yankees' incredible offense uh, and the Yankees' terrible pitching versus the Mets' sometimes terrible offense. Uh, you can't really predict how that series would have turned out, obviously, but it, it would have been amazing. And there, there was no wild card system back at this time. If there had been, the Yankees would have run away with the wild card. It wouldn't even have been a race. And the Mets would have won their division over the Expos by several games because the St. Louis Cardinals, who beat out the Mets for first place, would have been in a different division. And there were only two teams in baseball that had better records than the Mets and the Yankees. And it just so happened that they were the two teams, the Cardinals and the Blue Jays, um, that were in each of their divisions. Um, And just to give some perspective, that 85 Mets team, was at the time the second best team in their history behind only the 69 Mets. Um, And the 85 Yankees team won 97 games, and no Yankees team won that many games again uh, until the 1998 championship Yankees. And I think it's also worth noting that the 96 championship team didn't win that many games. The 99 and the 2000 championship teams didn't win that many games. So these were two really, really good ball clubs who – had one or two games the entire season gone a different way, uh, could have made the postseason that year. Um, you talked a little bit about the personalities on the Mets and what made them a fun team. Um, can you talk a little maybe about the relationship between the veterans and the youngsters on that team? Because you had those young guys like Doc and Daryl, but then you had these experienced veterans like Hernandez and Carter, and it seemed to work very well together. Yeah, it was an interesting di- dynamic, as you, as you point out. You had the young kids in, you had Gooden, you had Strawberry, you had Lenny Dykstra who came up that season. Uh, you had Sid Fernandez and Ron Darling who were still still relatively young at the time. Um, and then you have sort of the grizzled old veteran in Hernandez and Gary Carter. It was an interesting dynamic, but it, it worked. Um, at least it worked in the mid-'80s. Uh, Strawberry looked up to Hernandez, um, who, I mean, Keith was just a smart ball player, both on and off the field. Uh, he knew how to use the media to his advantage when he was trying to get a player to shape up, uh, drop a comment here, say something there to get that player to, to act as best they could. Um, but he was also sort of this general on the field. He knew when to come over to a pitcher and just give them a quick break, just say a word of encouragement, uh, he knew how to position himself on the field. He often would would be in charge of positioning himself, or he would not listen to Davey Johnson's instructions because he felt that he knew better. And then, of course, you had Gary Carter, who had been around for a decade at that point, and who was uh, itching to get to the postseason again. He'd only been there once in 81 with the Expos. And these guys were really two of the leaders of the team. Um, and it worked then. Eventually, at the end of the 80s, the, the things that made the, the 85 and 86 Mets great would sort of be their undoing. And part of that would be uh, that Hernandez and Carter has sort of fallen by the wayside with management and and some of the younger guys who are now older were just, their New York swagger was getting to be too much. Uh, But not in 85. In 85, it was still all new uh, and it still worked. And any fights that were going on were with other teams, not internally. Um, And and that carried over to 86. And it's, it's one of the, things that made the Mets as great as as they were. We haven't even talked, we've talked about so many people and we haven't even talked about one of the most unique uh, players and personalities in the game at that time, and that was Ricky Henderson. Can you talk a little about Ricky? 
Yeah, Ricky is uh, he's an interesting personality. Um, as I said, he was probably the best all-around player in the game when you include the speed element. Um, and the Yankees traded for him in, in the offseason before 1985. And it was probably the best player they had traded for really since Babe Ruth. I, I don't think it's a stretch to say that. And by then, everybody knew how fast Ricky was. He had already broken the single-season stolen brace record. He was well on his way to breaking the all-time record. And, of course, he was an incredible leadoff hitter. Um, but it didn't work out that well in New York for a variety of reasons. Um, Ricky's first day, he got injured in spring training and showed up a couple weeks later in the regular season. And his first day, he said to the press, I, I, got, I ain't got time for press right now. Uh, and that was sort of a bad start for the New York media. Uh, and there was an incident. There was a strike that year. It lasted only two days. Uh, but when the strike was over, all the players came back. And the Yankees had a doubleheader. And Ricky didn't, wasn't able to make it back in time. So then he and Steinbrenner got into a spat. Um, to his credit, Henderson tried to avoid that stuff, at least with the press, as much as he could in the early going. In the later years, he would air out his grievances two reporters about how he thought the Yankees drank too much and how it affected their play. Uh, and it, it, it turned him off to a lot of his teammates. And I think that's one of the reasons why he was eventually traded in 1989 for essentially little value in, in return, not to belittle the players the Yankees got back, but the A's certainly got the better of that deal when they got Ricky back a second time. So it's, it's interesting because you would think that that deal would, be similar to the Carter deal in terms of these these moments in team history where everything changes. Um, and it did for the Mets. And for the Yankees, it didn't. I mean, for the Yankees, the Henderson deal is, and his time in New York is essentially just a footnote and some statistics. Uh, if it weren't for him having set the team's all-time stolen base record, even though he was only there for four seasons, uh, there wouldn't be much memorable about it. Um, other than the fact that the Yankees did not make the playoffs and that he made some controversial comments. Well, as I said, I, I think this book was so character-driven because there were so many great figures to work with. We haven't even talked about Daryl Strawberry, uh, Hall of Famers like Dave Winfield, Phil Necro. Um, but I'm wondering if there was maybe a lesser-known character, maybe a, you know, not as big of a name that you found very interesting from one of the two teams. I think uh, there, I mean, there were a lot of really great, interesting personalities on this team uh, for the Mets. I think one of them was Doug Sisk, who was a reliever for the Mets and who had pitched fairly well for them previous to uh, 1985. But then he got injured and his, his performance went down and he bore the brunt of that for Mets fans. And, uh, they were sort of merciless in how they treated him. And Sisk is a, is a funny guy. Um, so it's sort of unfortunate that that's how it turned out. Um, but, and on the Yankees end, you had a guy like Joe Cowley, who was a starting pitcher for the Yankees, and he was just a real flaky kind of guy. Uh, his teammates, they sort of tolerated him <laughs> uh, because he, he would be talking in the clubhouse about God knows what, and they would basically tell him to shut up, and he would ignore them. And and it sort of just became one of those, well, I guess, you know, before Manny being Manny was popular, it was one of those, well, there's Joe being Joe kind of things. But he was a, a weird, interesting guy. 
Um, I really, really wanted to interview him, but seemingly true to character, he has apparently disappeared. Uh, none of the teams he played for knew where he was. Uh, I checked with old addresses, and, and nobody who lived there now knew what happened to him. So uh, it's unfortunate because I would have loved to have talked to him. But, uh, yeah, he, he true to character, seems to have disappeared. <laughs> uh, one last person I wanted to ask you about was Davey Johnson. Davey has always kind of been portrayed as this benevolent figure who just kind of set, sat back and let the kids play. But you make the case that he was actually a very intelligent baseball mind. Can you talk about Davey a little bit? Yeah, I think Davey's hands-off style was more about off-the-field activities. Um, Davey, in Davey's mind, look, these guys were all adults. They were grown men. And if they want to go out after the game and have beers <clears throat> or do whatever – uh, that was on them. As long as they showed up the next day ready to play and played their asses off, Davey was going to be fine with it. And he was one of the first people to really use computers to analyze the game and statistics. And even when he was a player in the 60s, he had used computers to put together these lineups and to try and figure out the most effective lineups for the Baltimore Orioles, who he was with at the time. And he would give these lineups to Earl Weaver, the manager, and Earl would basically ignore them. Uh, but then as he becomes a manager with the Mets, he's using these sort of insights uh, effectively. And it's not to say that he didn't necessarily manage by gut or by instinct sometimes, but he, he really truly was one of the first people to see the value in computers and in statistics and in some of the analytics that are now so popular in the game. And I, I think that's reflective of the record that he has. He's the uh, best record in history for a Mets manager. Every team he's gone to, he has won. Uh, he has one of the highest winning percentages of any manager in baseball history. So, yeah, I mean, he certainly was not hands-off when it came to what happened on the field. Off the field, that's a different story, and unfortunately, it's it's what led to, uh, or what you could argue led to the downfall of the Mets and Davey Johnson's time with the Mets uh, in the early 90s. Why do you think the Yankees and Mets went in different directions after 1985? I think it was a combination of a couple of things. Is I mean, look, some of it is luck. It's, it's, some of it is luck. Every championship, no matter how great the players are, there was some luck involved. Uh, some player works out uh, that you didn't think would. Uh, some play happens that you didn't think would happen. Uh, so I'm sure that's part of it. But another part of it is the fact that the Yankees had essentially traded away all of their prospects throughout the 80s and got almost nothing in return. There's really no trade you can look at throughout the course of the 1980s where you can say, uh, well, boy, that one really worked out for the Yankees, uh, both in the short term uh, or in the long term. I mean, Henderson had some great years there. There's no question about it. But, I mean, ultimately it just didn't work out. Um, and that wasn't the case with the Mets. The Mets were building up their farm system. They were getting all these really good prospects who, who they then allowed to flourish and develop. Uh, the boss never allowed that. The few prospects that he kept, uh, he did, they called the Columbus Shuttle because the Yankees AAA team was in Columbus and players would be called up. And if they had a bad outing, if they made an error, if they struck out in a big situation, George sent them right back down to Columbus. And then he sent them back up a couple of days later and then something would happen and he'd send them back down. And then they would be traded. Um, and that's what happened throughout the course of the 80s. And it's, I mean, it's no coincidence that it played out the way that it did. The management styles, and I'm talking about upper management, not the manager on the field, were just completely different. 
Um, and that's why the Yankees were as bad as they were come 1990. And, and it's why the Mets were as good as they were throughout the 80s. I've always felt kind of a, a nice postscript to this this season in this book really is, is that, you know, a, a decade or so later, Doc and Daryl end up in pinstripes and help the Yankees get back on top and win a championship. Do you think that was George signing those guys was George's way of kind of sticking it to the Mets? Oh, absolutely. I think, first of all, George loved a good comeback story. He, he loved the idea of second chances. And so that's why he would sign Doc and Daryl. But there's no doubt in my mind he had to get some immense joy out of those two guys winning a world championship with the New York Yankees, as I'm sure he did with several players, including David Cohn and Wade Boggs you know, of, of the Red Sox. There's no question sure. uh, that... And Clemens. And Clemens, exactly. Yeah, there's just no doubt, given the kind of personality that he was, that George was giddy over the thought of these guys doing a championship parade because they won one with the Yankees. Right. I agree. Well, Chris, I've, I've taken enough of your time. Uh, one final question for you. What, if anything, are you working on now? I have another idea that I'm I'm sort of flushing out right now. It, it will be a sports book, um, but I'm still sort of in the process of all working it out. So I don't want to say too much. I guess I'm a little superstitious <laughs> about it, but uh, it, it will be another baseball-related book. Well, great. I look forward to reading it. And thank you so much for your time, Chris. Again, the book is called Doc, Donnie, the Kid, and Billy Brawl, How the 1985 Mets and Yankees Fought for New York's Baseball Soul. I highly recommend it. Thanks a lot, Chris. Thanks, Paul. I appreciate it.